I'm super happy. Are you happy? Welcome to the BU Find Happy Podcast. Here you'll find tips and tricks to inspire you on your way to happiness, to live a courageous life of authenticity, and learn how to speak your truth with grace. I'm Michaela Johnson, and welcome to our podcast. It's the news I have been promising and I can finally share it with you. And it almost feels so odd to be sharing this news during this time of the world, but it's like such an incredible time to be the you that you want to be. And so I am stoked to finally tell you guys that I have empowered a motivational journal for women coming out June. And guys, let me tell you, it is full of thought-provoking prompts that encourage and empower you to dig deep and cultivate positive change. It's motivational. It's got tons of inspirational quotes and plenty of pages to write and a gorgeous design with illustrations. And I am so proud of it. It totally puts into practice everything uh, that I did to see the dream of being traditionally published with an international book to fruition. And I know uh, that so many of these prompts have had wild success with my clients, and I'm so excited to finally share this with you. And you can pre-order it today. Ah, I can't believe it's like really happening. And I put the link in the show notes. Check it out. Welcome back to the BU Find Happy podcast. If you haven't taken a second to click like and hit subscribe on this podcast, please do. That's what keeps us moving along. Today, guys, I have Tamsin Webster and she's amazing. But really what I loved about her the most is that she inspires people to look at the way they want to change and how they want others to see the world and their ideas and to look at things with a slightly different perspective. And that's really what being you and finding happy is all about. So here's Tamsin sharing some really cool ideas on how to share your ideas. Well, thanks for thanks for being a guest today on the BU Find Happy podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on. Uh, I stumbled across your information kind of in a random way and was like, I love what this woman is doing. This is amazing. Oh, yay. I love that. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate that. Can you, could you give the listeners a little bit of backstory on who you are and, and what you've got going? And then I'll kind of dive into some of the questions that I have for you. Sure. I, uh, as I, well, what I do is I help uh, people and organizations make their ideas strong enough to build on. And so what I mean by that is, um, you know, people and organizations kind of throughout my whole career, they often are driven to serve some kind of idea that's bigger than themselves. I mean, sometimes that's on behalf of an organization. Sometimes that's on behalf you know, of just something that they're really passionate about. Um, and what I find oftentimes is that we focus so much on how much we, how important that we think our idea is that we forget that we need to pay attention to how do we make sure that we can convey that importance to other people. Um, so, uh, what I believe in, what I found is that ideas are really built in people's mind. And so what that means is if we want to get other people to see our ideas as, as important as we do, we actually need to find ways to rebuild that idea in their heads. So it's as strong and as irresistible as possible. And uh, that's the work that I do. 
Oh, I love that. And, you know, it's interesting when I first um, started kind of doing guest interviews and things like that, they said, they asked me that, well, what, why is what you're sharing important to everybody else? And uh, I see that as being something that people really could empower them just in their daily life as well. How do I communicate what's important to me? I mean, that is just such a basic, I mean, even I'm just thinking marital relationships and things like that. So, um, yeah, it seems like, you know, what you're doing isn't just a tool for, you know, for people with some big extravagant idea, but these sorts oh, no. of concepts, <laughs> yeah, could apply to everywhere yeah. in life. Absolutely. And, and honestly, it, 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 that happened because of, you know, where all of this came from for me. So, you know, I studied marketing. So I've been a brand and message strategist for 20 years working with and for like organizations of all types, nonprofits, for profits, startups, Fortune 10. Um, and yeah, a lot of times they are in fact looking at these big ideas that have to get out there, you know, anything from, you know, things that lead to important outcomes, like how do we drive more sales or more donations or how do we get people to act or, or not act? But overlaying 13 of those years, I was a Weight Watchers leader, which is a whole other story. Um, but, but what I was finding was that, you know, that these, this thing that I was doing in my free time had such an impact on the work that I was doing full time. And the reason why was because these were these in a lot of ways were these little ideas that I had to get across week by week by week that would shift people's thinking or behavior around something that was super important to them. So this absolutely has is a is is an approach and a process like this is why I believe so strongly in it is because I had, you know, 13 years of of seeing it work at the individual level. And realizing that nothing will work at an organizational or even market level if it doesn't work at that individual level first. Uh, and so I just went hard and deep in trying to understand how does that work? How do people make those decisions to change? What do they need to hear? How do their brains work? Uh, and then figuring out what I could do where I could, in a repeatable way, find ways to kind of take any idea and and frame it in such a way that it would achieve those those results that we were looking for but in a way that was consistent with my own morality because I don't believe in just like manipulating people um uh but also was inconsistent with was consistent with how people you know the people I was talking to was helping actually helping them get what they were looking for too so um it, it's a it's been a, just a fascinating it's been a fascinating discovery and not one I think I ever could have predicted at the beginning wow. of my career. Those are the best. Um, when you mentioned manipulation, I kind of jotted a quick note because I think there is a very um, important difference between manipulation and inspiration, you know, and I think yes. sometimes uh, we think if we can just strong arm people into um, jumping on board with us, that that's going to make us, that's going to make everything all right, going to make everything feel better. But it, it, we need to come at it from a perspective of here's why this will work for you, or here's why, um, this is important to me. And I, and I love that. I love that you said, you know, you're not big in manipulation because I think a lot of times that, that especially with organizations, you know, it seems the easiest to just like, how can we finagle? (laughs) Absolutely. And, and I, that's where I draw a big distinction between driving action and driving change. And, you know, for me, change is 
action sustained. Um, and so absolutely, you can do things. We all know how to do things where you can, you know, dial up the pain of a decision. You can kind of like put a big incentive out there and prompt someone to a behavior. I mean, so we can, yeah, I could talk about it from a business standpoint, but even back to like my Weight Watchers days, like you could see it, the difference with a fad diet. Do they work? Absolutely. Can you sustain them? No. No. <laughs> um, no, you can't. And the same thing is true with with those manipulations that happen in, in a lot of sales and marketing conversations, particularly when they're based fundamentally on pain. So one of the things that I've learned in all sides of my career is that you know, people, you know, one of the one of the most basic human needs that we have is and beliefs that we have is that we are smart, capable and good is how I like to put it. Um, you know, we want to be smart, capable, and good. We believe we already are smart, capable, and good. And even if we don't believe that, we want to be seen as smart, capable, and good. And it drives everything that we do. And the problem is that the minute that you make someone feel not smart, capable, and good, because it's such a fundamental want and belief, like you have set up a, a, a chasm that you cannot close. Um, you know, you not over time. So in the in the beginning, someone may act because they're like, oh, well, how you know, I, I don't want to miss out on this thing. So, of course, I'm going to act. But then over time, and I think we've all had this experience ourselves where like, yes, we may have been prompted to act in that moment. And then afterwards, we're like, wait a minute. Like, this is not who I am, or this is not a good fit for us, or this is, you know, this this company does not represent the values that we have as a company. Um, and that's where buyer's remorse sets in. That's where churn sets in. Um, and when we're talking about our personal lives, that's where, you know, reversion back to the things that feel more right to you come into play. So my aim always with messaging is long-term change. What can we do to help people make and sustain a change in thinking or behavior? And the only way that you can do that is by upholding their beliefs, not challenging them. Mm, that's absolutely true. I mean, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about different relationships, um, you know, that I see in my psychotherapy practice and things like that, where, you know, she's never going to change. He's never going to change. And it's probably because they didn't want to change in the way you wanted them to change. I love that. That is absolutely true. And yeah, so how I, just, can we find over that? Over yeah. That middle ground, um, that, yes, that is, that's just, I just had a light bulb go. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, that, it's it's absolutely that. true. And I love what you said that people want to feel smart, capable and good. They want to believe that about themselves. Of course, that is yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah, well, my I mean, you know, you as a psychotherapist know this concept well, but essentially my, you know, one of my entire keynotes, I call it getting the green light is basically about that idea. And though I never mention it in the talk, it is 100 percent about a talk about cognitive dissonance um, and that if that if we are like that gap, we're always trying to close that gap. And so when you are creating that gap in your marketing or sales messaging, or even just your interpersonal conversations, um, you know, better than others, Michaela, like how powerful that drive is to restore cognitive consonants. So you go back to like, well, what is the thing that's right for me? And so, this is where, like, when I'm working with clients on this, this is what we're really thinking about. We're, we're thinking about how do we create the case for this change in thinking or behavior that somebody would naturally tell themselves? Not the one that we need to convince them to tell themselves, but the one that, based on how they already see the world right now, makes sense. And it actually ends up feeling more cognitively consonant to them than what they're doing. Wow. 
and and what a powerful thing to be able to inspire somebody to see something in a different way um, that could potentially and hopefully improve their life or their quality of life dramatically. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the key to that kind of reframing that I've seen, because I've always, you know, I, I do not, I don't come from a, you know, a psychotherapy or I, I've had plenty. Um, but I, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist, uh, not a social worker, any of that. But, um, it kind of what I like to say is kind of practical application to these concepts because, um, you know, honestly, a lot of that, we, we were taught a lot of it back in my training as a Weight Watcher leader not from a therapeutic standpoint, but just in a, here's how people's brains work kind of, kind of way. Um, and what I found in that practical application of some of these concepts, particularly around reframing, right? Which is for me, the first step that has to happen before someone will change what they're doing. So I often will say, you can't change what people do until you change how they see, because mm -hmm. how we see drive do. So a lot of times we start by trying to change somebody's actions, but we've, we've left the, how they see the world unchanged. Um, and that's not going to, that's not going to work because they're going to, they're going to revert back to how they see the world. So your only hope is really in changing how someone looks at the situation in the first place. And yet, if we remember that people must feel smart, capable and good, that means we have to reframe, reframe things in a very, very specific way. And that is we have to give them a new way to look at the situation that is consistent with how they're looking at the world right now. So. Here's what I mean by that. So I often use this just as a metaphorical explanation. So I'm sure everybody and your listeners have seen like a, um, a optical illusion like the um, old woman, young woman or the two yeah. faces enemies. Yeah. So my favorite one is from 1892 and it's called the rabbit duck illusion, but I like to call it the duck bunny. Um, and, and it's easy to find if you search online, just call it find the rabbit duck illusion. But as you might imagine, what it is, is that you look at it and you either see a duck or a bunny first. Um, but the same lines create the same picture. Now, my very unscientific experiment so far has shown that for whatever reason, most people tend to see the duck first. Um, so I explain reframing in the context of, of this duck bunny, which is if people are seeing the duck, like, they are going to see the duck. It's not wrong. They see the duck. The duck is in right. fact there. Right. But you, once you tell them that there's a bunny with the same information, just looking at the same data, right, the same inputs, you can see a bunny, then they can see the bunny too. And if for some and it's reason, like, aha, <laughs> oh, aha, oh my gosh, right. So you know, if if I if I take like just a corporate example, for instance, and we've got people who are focused, you know, they're trying to figure out how do we retain more employees. Um, and we're finding that they're focused very much on kind of the perks that are associated with very various positions, right? That's their duck right now. They're like, well, how do we change the perks that are associated with these positions so people will stay longer? And we can show them that like, well, yeah, of course it makes sense to look at the positions because that's, you know, that's traditionally what we've done. But let's remember that the bunny here, the thing that's also in view and consistent with their world is there's people in those positions, what happens if we actually look at the situation now focusing on the people instead of the positions? What does that start to do? And so, you know, what we're doing when we're talking about creating messages and kind of formulating ideas is that we're saying, okay, well, why is for, you know, why if I'm the one, you know, in this case, this was my client, Tracy Tim, if I am, if I'm, if I do believe that the positions are important, why do I believe that's important? Well, she believes it's important because people are what make the positions work. And you can see that's a statement that in a lot of cases, somebody that you're talking to 
would be something that they would agree with. It, it would be a, it would be kind of a, a truth, as I like to call it, that's consistent with how they see the world right now. And so it makes this shift from focusing on positions to people pretty painless because it means that they haven't had to abandon any of their beliefs. We just got to put a different one that they already had in play um, and have helped that, you know, just gotten them with, again, saying there's nothing wrong that you see, but there's a bunny there too. Do you see the bunny? Here's why the bunny's important. And if you want this other thing, uh, let's make sure that we're, we're focusing on, okay, how do we do that? You know? So in her case, her solution, her idea was, um, tailor the, the perks of a position to the people in the, in the, in that, meaning, you know, have a variety of perks that could be associated with a various position. So different individuals could choose based on their level from kind of a menu of which ones made the most sense for them. So you see what that does is it allows people, you know, the, like, let's say a leader of an organization, they don't have to abandon, they don't have to abandon this position based thing, but now they're able to do something that incorporates this new perspective that actually helps them achieve what they were looking for in the first place, which is how do I retain more people? And, and such a great analogy. And I, again, can see how this can apply so well in everyday life. We get stuck on just seeing the one thing when there are plenty of other avenues or approaches to any problem that we have. And I, I mean, the analogy is great. And I know analogies is one of your specialties, right? Isn't that <laughs> something that you, you help people kind of find, analogies that 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 help inspire or help people understand circumstances and situations better is that true yeah i mean and it's funny because i wasn't always great at it and uh I, it became a thing that i really tried it was a it was a skill i admired in a former boss that i had about 5 years ago i'm like how does he always come up with these most interesting ways to explain things um and I decided it was just because I didn't have a wide enough net. Like I just didn't have, I wasn't looking widely enough uh, to, to be able to kind of just draw interesting parallels. But yeah, I mean, analogies are important because, oh, I forget the name of the person who said it, but there is a, um, there's a, uh, you know, an academic out of, of, uh, Stanford, I believe that says that, you know, that analogy is cognition. That's, that's how we think about the world is actually through analogies. Our brains are constantly saying, how is this thing that I'm experiencing like something else? Yeah. And for so human survival. Yeah. Exactly. Because you're like, is this a situation I recognize? Okay. What happened the last time I was in a situation like this? And then we, we kind of use that. We use that, you know, we use that when we're talking to people, we use that when we're judging situations, we're just saying, how is this thing like another thing? So it's incredibly natural instinct for us. Um, and that's useful if you're trying to either figure out what your idea is or figure out how to articulate it or figure out how to make your articulation more interesting. One of the first steps sometimes is to say, well, what else is it like? Um, you know, what is the thing that this mimics? Like, you know, just like I said with a duck bunny, like what, you know, when I was trying to figure out how do I explain this concept of reframing without going into the psychology of it, because most of my <laughs> clients, they wouldn't care. Um you know, what is it like? Um, I was like, well, because, you know, there are a couple of things that were pretty important to me. I said, one of the things that's important, particularly when you're coming up with messages back to smart, capable and good is not making people feel wrong. So how can I get across this kind of two perspective thing where the first perspective isn't wrong? Because that's really important. And I was like, well, it's kind of like, well, it's kind of like those illusions where in order to see one thing, 
you know, the, the lines that create one create the other. Um, they're both there and it really is just a change of, of, um, attention. And so once you understand kind of the basic concept and you can find other things that it's like, then if you're trying to explain it to somebody else, then you start to kind of stockpile different ways to explain it. So, you know, that same concept I have explained in talks with kind of a, a fun story about Salvador Dali and Mae West, um, which I know people are like, what? How does that be? Well, and it comes down to the fact that, you know, back in the 1930s, uh, Salvador Dali saw a picture of Mae West and then made a painting of her face as if it were an apartment. And then, which you would probably, you may have seen, not realized you've seen, it's the Art Institute of Chicago, and it's, I think it's called Mae West as Surrealist Apartment. Um, wow. and, and then about, you know, 50 years later, 40 years later, he decided when he was creating his museum, he wanted to actually build the room. So he created it. So, you know, the, the, her nose is a hearth and, and her lips wow. are a couch and her, and the drapes are her hair and her eyes are two paintings on the wall. Um, but it's possible to enter that room from the side. Wow. And so, and I've had a picture of it. It's probably the most expensive stock image I've ever bought in my life um, <laughs> because only Getty images had that view from the side because the only way you see her face is if you're standing right in front of it, right. like for, directly. But if you come at it from the side, you're going to see all the same elements, but they're not going to, you're not going to see the answer, quote unquote. Wow. So, so that's another, but you see, I couldn't have gotten to that point if I wasn't trying to figure out what that basic concept was. So yeah. And in, in my practice with clients, a lot of times, you know, it's easier for them to, to think through their ideas or their concepts and analogies first. I'm like, well, what else is it like? Like if, particularly when we're trying to figure out that, what I call the problem pair, which is what the duck bunny represents. Um, yeah, I'm like, well, what is it like? And sometimes people are like, well, it's like putting the cart before the horse. Okay. So now we have a, now we've got something where the concept is two things are out of order. What else could we use besides cart and horse? Like what else can you think of where things are out of order? Um, you know, stories, examples, you know, things that you've experienced in your own life when something's been out of order, those are all ways to help illustrate for somebody else kind of a deeper concept. And by the way, it's usually a lot faster to getting them to understand that deeper concept because they're, you're using that analogy that's so natural. They're, they're like, oh, it's like this, right? And, you know, classic example is how movies are sold and you know, that, that alien, the movie was, was pitched as Jaws in space. Like, well, uh, people had seen the movie Jaws. Right. Then they were like, Oh, I get it. There's going to be some kind of like monster that's going to be hidden most of the time. And when it shows up, it's going to be terrifying and what's going to happen. And, and they could understand it without having to go through, well, the scene opens, you know, <laughs> it's right. seaside town, right? Like, uh, and a lot of times that's exactly what we do when we try to explain an idea for people is that we, we, we tell them like all the elements of the scene and the plot and we just forget to tell them what it's actually about. Well, I, I love it because I use them tremendously in my psychotherapy practice for the same exact reason. You know, I'm like, it's an ocean, the storm's on top, but underneath the little crabs are happily just, you know, chugging along on the bottom of the ocean. They're not impacted by the storm above. You know? right, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm always using these kinds of, you're, you guys are in a kayak together and now you're rowing, but you're rowing one way and you're rowing the other way. What's happening here? You know, so I'm, I'm always using those kind of analogies, but what's funny is, um, I've had clients come back, you know, a year later or something and be like, remember when you said we were in the kayak together and we weren't rolling? <laughs> it sticks in their mind. That's the other piece of it is analogies That's are right. easy to kind of latch onto that way. 
That's and, exactly uh, right. Yeah, they're super powerful. Like people, I like I used to I used to always use Dali and West, and then for whatever reason, like for actually for time reasons, one time I was just like, well, it's like this Duck Bunny, and now every now people talk like they say Duck Bunny back to me, which right? which is at the point where you're like. Okay, they they're like this actually this really stuck, you know. I'm like, what's the duck bunny? I'm like, technically it's the problem pair, but everyone's like, what's the duck bunny here? And I'm like, okay, let's figure this out. So you say ideas are best. Um, you say best ideas aren't found; they're built. What does that mean? What does that mean? Where do, I was, uh, I, I love that, but I want to get your perspective on it. So the uh, you know the the way I see it and the way I've experienced it is that you know a lot of times we think that ideas like come to us in that flash of a moment you know the kind of classic things like Archimedes in the bathtub with like Eureka I found it or you know Isaac Newton with a you know apple falls from his tree and then he's like ah gravity of course um, but but what I found is that that's actually that moment where that that aha happens is actually the moment where all the pieces of the idea fall into place hmm. and. Um, in order to understand that, we have to understand a little bit more about the brain works and how it makes sense of the world. And it isn't just analogy, because analogy is part of it, um, but how the brain makes a sense of the world is that it, it creates stories about it. And, um, and this is well documented and the, the, well, also well documented. This is happens pre-consciously. All the parts of our brains that slot something into a story happens before we're even aware of it. You know, our brain is unconsciously saying, Oh, right. This is like that ocean on the, on the surface moment that, that Michaela talked to me about. Um, but once we understand those, once we understand that piece, then we start to understand, okay, here's how an idea gets built because it gets built when all the pieces of the story of the idea get built. Um, and once I figured that piece out, I was like, well, that's great, but what are those pieces? Because if I could figure out that, then we've got something really good going on. Um, and so I took a deep dive into storytelling, not for storytelling's sake, but actually to figure out what are the, what are the critical elements of a story? A lot of times people, when they're talking about, you know, what's a story, by the way, I would say that a lot of the information that's out there about story is very disappointing. <laughs> It's like, it, it tells you what a story is, but it doesn't really tell you and what it has, but it doesn't actually tell you how to get there. You know, so for right. instance, it doesn't explain the arc. It doesn't. Ex yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they'll tell you it has a beginning, middle and end. And to paraphrase a friend of mine, like, so does a piece of string. So what does that tell you? <laughs> um, you know, they'll tell you that, you know, if you follow uh, Hero's Journey, Joseph Conrad, or even more modern days, you know, Donald Miller and Story Brand, that, you know, there's a character who wants something and then there's a guide and there's a thing. And I'm like, again, those are what it has. But that doesn't actually tell me how to find those things. And so, you know, there was a day where I was like, well, if, if I think of these pieces of a story, you know, these kind of, you know, areas of the story, beginning and middle and end as the, the line, well, what, what, where does it start and what happens to turn it to the middle and what happens to turn it to the end and how do we know it's over? And so that kind of question combined with some research that came out of Princeton, which was amazing because what they did was they showed people um, an episode of uh, the British drama Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and all of that, um, which I love this. And what they were doing was they wanted to see what people remember. And so they showed this episode of Sherlock and they wanted to see was there consistencies in what people remember. And it turns out there were. So hmm. people would remember different details or they may remember them incorrectly or not. But the, the things that they all remembered were those 
those endpoints that I just talked about, those things that moved the story forward, mm-hmm. the establishment of what some is what somebody wanted, the kind of establishment of like what was a problem, the a moment of truth where they had to make a decision about that, what that actual decision was, and then what they did as a result. And so what I did was kind of say, okay, working on this theory, what happens if we name those points? And if we just fill in those blanks, what happens? And so I decided to name those points. And so it, the way I see it, a story really begins. I mean, there's preamble and whatever, but a story begins the moment that you understand what somebody wants. So I call that the goal because, again, it's not just, okay, I have a character with a goal. I actually have to define what is it that somebody wants. You know, So if I'm kind of figuring out what – you know brought me to or what brought Isaac Newton to the concept of gravity. He was wanted to know why do things fall, right? right. Um, and then that next major point in the story is the introduction of a problem that people didn't know they had. Now, this is where the duck bunny comes in because this is where I use that. Um, but, you know, this is where there's that moment where Isaac Newton is going, everybody is focused on this part of this solution, this piece of it, but what about this way, Right. You can think about it with like Galileo or Copernicus, like everybody thinks the sun's at the center, but what if, you know, excuse me, everyone thinks that the earth is at the center and there's a good reason for that, but what if it actually works differently, right? So that's that mm-hmm. problem of perspective. The next piece is that moment of truth, right? So what is that either, what is that piece of information that puts, you know, be, that kind of validates the problem and puts the goal in jeopardy? And here's what I mean, like, So if you're really trying to figure out why things fall and you've kind of like all of a sudden, you know, there's something where you're actually thinking about something that's pulling down from the ground rather than things are just fused in air somehow. um, Then all of a sudden there's got to be something that allows you to say, well, you know, there's there's something else that must be happening here. Um, And that leads you to a change in thinking. That's the fourth piece. So goal, problem, truth, change. And then the action is what you do as a result. And so what happens with ideas is that those are the blanks that our brains are trying to fill. We're trying to say, well, you know, it starts with like, what do I want? There's a thing that I want. I want an outcome. What is it? There's a moment where, you know, that where all of a sudden you, you realize that there's a bunny in the picture that you didn't see was there before. There's, there's a, as soon as you see it, there's a reason why you cannot now ignore the bunny, that there's something that you can't unhear about it. That's that truth piece. And in that moment is when that change in thinking happens. And that's when you get that flash of a hot. And so that's what I mean by an idea. It was kind of a long explanation, but that's what I mean by, you know, an idea is built because our, I, you know, our, our ideas are a story and we have to go back and retrace that story. If we really want to a make sure that they're strong and strong enough to build on, but B if we want someone else to come to the same conclusion about our idea, we have to rebuild that story because mm-hmm. that's what their brains are looking for. Right, right. Absolutely. No, I'm thinking back on times in my life where I've come up with a want, um, you know, I want to do this thing or I think this would be a great idea or that sort of thing. And 
um, then, you know, convincing the people around me required really backtracking with, okay, this, this, and then this, and then that. And then if we look at this, then that could happen. And then this, and this, and, you know, to get that buy-in, you can't just go, this is my great idea. Okay, ready? Let's go. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And uh, I although, see that a lot where we, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I w- you know, <laughs> kind of in, you know, how the story is formulated or whatever. My husband and I in the past couple months have gone to various different restaurants and I've listened to him ask, is this frozen? Did this come from a freezer? You know, that kind of a thing. And then yeah. inevitably the waitress always comes, oh, I'm not sure what, what that answer is. Let me, let me go find out. And then she comes back and says, yeah, these are frozen. And then he gets all huffy, not with her, but just in general, like yeah. I'm coming here to, you know, for a meal that is, that is made. If I wanted frozen food, I'd go to the grocery store and microwave, yeah. you know, whatever. And so this has had me thinking for months and months on end. And I finally started asking well, why are, why is it frozen? And, and a couple of different restaurants said, because in order to have this battered thing, you have to do all the battering process and then the batter would fall off and we deep fry it. So we have to freeze it. You know, it has to be frozen first. This is why we took it off the menu and just bought frozen stuff. And I thought we need a flash freezer. They have the flash fryers. We need a flash yeah. freezer so that restaurants <laughs> right. can make these freaking cheese poppers without. <laughs> You know, whatever. Writing themselves, uh, exactly. Yeah, there was a whole story that, that trans- I didn't just wake up and go, ooh, flash for freezers. <laughs> right, exactly. And, but sometimes it can feel that way. And that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the cool thing about them. And so, you know, if I'm working on, you know, if I'm working with an entrepreneur or, you know, or a larger business even on their idea and they're like, they know they have the answer. They're like, this is the right answer. Um, what happens is we get blind to the path that we already took to it. Um, so, you know, the, the, the name of that process that I just outlined, I call it the red thread. It gets its name from the Greek, uh, myth about the hero Theseus and his battle with the Minotaur in the labyrinth. Um, and the Minotaur lived in in a labyrinth and the red thread was how Theseus solved the problem of the maze. He had to trace his steps to the labyrinth, to the Minotaur so he could retrace his steps on the way out. And so I explain it to people this way, which is, you know, when you have an idea, like it's more often than not, it's your way to slay the monster. Like you have found a new way (laughs) to do a thing that's necessary. The problem is in order to get other people to understand that you actually have to retrace your steps. Like you have to understand what it was that got you to that point so that you can then go out and tell other people about it as well. And you know, that's, that's the key. And a lot of times it's, it is, it's such a fascinating discovery process that people go through. Um, but it's also so powerful because if you can kind of realize, you know, if we're talking from a personal standpoint, how is it that you came to a personal conclusion about something? Um, then you can kind of back up and kind of rewire some of those answers and come to, and then help yourself come to a different conclusion about it. So, um, you know, at the risk of going too personal here. So I had a, I had a panic disorder for 17 years. Um, so from the age of 17 to 34, um, and I'm not 34 anymore. So I've, it's 12 years now that I have not had any medication nor a panic attack. Um, and some of it, uh, some of it came from a, from a simple, you know, from a, from, I can look back at it and see what happened kind of using the same framework in my own head. And I'm not saying that this is a magical key f- cure for anybody. I'm, I'm truly not because this is, these red threads are so personal to people. And, you know, if I'm going to say, okay, my, my, you know, my wants in a situation, you know, um, 
you know, always was like, how can I not panic? Um, how can I feel normal in the situation? Um, that's the goal. Like, how can I, you know, feel normal in the situation? How can I be like quote unquote normal people? Um, it was a therapist who helped me kind of with that duck bunny, my problem of perspective. And I remember one time saying, you know, he, he just went through a series of questions with me where all of a sudden I realized that what I was perceiving to be abnormal, which of course, you know, it's diagnosed as a disorder, right? So you're going to look at it as abnormal was in fact a very normal reaction for me. Um, that in certain situations, it was pretty much guaranteed that this was how I was going to react. Um, and that shift of realizing that something that I thought was abnormal, and there was a reason why it was, it may not have been what was normal for everybody else, but it was normal for me. You know, when I combine that with a truth that I believed about myself, which was that I already had everything that I needed, that, that, you know, and the way I would say it to myself was like, well, if I thought my way into this situation, I can think my way out. Like that just mm-hmm. felt natural to me. And so I was like, okay, so what can I now do differently when I'm starting to feel those moments of panic that, that is, a, that is a different reaction. And one is, you know, it started with just saying to myself, well, the only way out is through. This is normal for you. This is a situation where this makes sense for you. Um, you are your own safe place. Just you're good. This yeah. is normal. Yeah. And literally for me, the, the turnaround on that was, was so quick that once all of those pieces clicked into place, um, that was it. It was over. And, and it it's doesn't mean amazing. that I don't feel stress, but it was just kind of like that setup of things was just like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to anchor this reaction to, to things that I believe more about myself. I love that. Things I believe more about myself. And it's so powerful when sometimes all you need is someone to say, you're okay. <laughs> you're yeah. going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. Like Even if that's someone like, is yourself. <laughs> precisely. You know, and, you know, more light- lighthearted thing was just like, you know, the minute you tell yourself, like, don't eat the cookie, don't eat the cookie, don't eat the cookie. You're like, yeah. I didn't eat the cookie. Um, and so it's just kind of like that, that piece of it. And you know, so it's all of these experiences for me that are, that swirl together um, and really come to this faith that like that they're, that there are things that people are already believe that are stronger anchors for a new behavior than a new belief. And that, you know, that is it possible? Absolutely. Can you change people's long-term beliefs over time? Absolutely. That's absolutely something I would see over time with my Weight Watcher members is that if somebody walked in the door, not feeling like they, they were a thin person, like you don't change that identity overnight. Um, Mm -hmm you don't change that identity overnight. Like that is something that takes time. I can, I can change a behavior, you know, fairly quickly. Like my favorite example is, you know, Weight Watchers is based on a a point system where basically like a budget, every, oh, analogy, every food has a point value, right? And so you've got a budget of points and you basically, you know, every person has that budget. Let's say it's like 28 points and you, you assign based on what you eat, you're just like withdrawing from that account. What would happen is that there are people who believed deeply about themselves. They had applied a label to themselves that they were, quote unquote, night eaters. Um, and I could spend hours talking about the dangers of labels. But this was one of those things where I'm not going to convince them when they're upset that they are that the label night eater is neither true nor helpful. Um, right. Because if they believe they're a night eater. They are. And no, that's it. That's it. Perception is reality. Um 
And they were so frustrated because they want to lose weight, but they felt like their own self was getting in the way. How can I possibly lose weight when I am a night eater? And at the end of the day, when I have the fewest points, all my points are gone. There's no way this can work for me. So this is, you know, the problem of perspective that I just, I was like, huh, well, yeah, you know, it's disappointing. <laughs> it, it's disappointing because it's my, you know, I want to help these people. I, and I believe that I can help them and, you know, Weight Watchers may not be the right fit for everybody, but they believed it. So my job was to help them find the way I to follow work it. Work through it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the, the, you know, the kind of problem of perspective on the, on the duck bunny there was so simple. Um, I was to say, well, a day is just 24 hours. It doesn't have to start in the morning. And right. they'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, would, you know, so I would say to them, like, start your points at night. Like, start, right. your, start your points at dinner. And they're like, wait, That's I can do basic. that? <laughs> yeah, and they're like, wait, I can do that? Yes, you can do that. Um, you know, and, and funny story, like, you know, you know, I am five to seven years out from having been an active leader. Um, you know, but my husband, uh, and I'm not sharing anything he hasn't told other people is, is now on WW as it's called. Um, you know, and I, and, you know, he's been on and off it for several years and then, you know, but he, he refused to switch the, the day of the week that he started his points on because he's like, well, I do it on this day. And so, you know, not in a manipulative way, just one day I explained, I was like, here's why I start my points on Saturdays. I said, because just like starting my points at night, it means I have the most points on the days where I use them. Right. The weekend <laughs> when I'm home. Exactly. When I'm home. And then it's easy for me to kind of moderate all week, you know, right. when I don't have a lot of points, I'm not worrying it out. And then, and then back when the weekend hits, boom, I've got all my points again. Like literally the next day, he's like, I decided that Mondays, you know, like that Saturdays are a really good day to start my points. I'm like, did you? That's great. Um, That's the other thing is, you know, convincing them that they came up with it themselves. (laughs) And I'm such a believer in that. Like I, you, you know, a thing that I say to my clients and to audiences when I speak on this is that you, you cannot create change. I know that's what we want, but you can't do it. You can only create the conditions for it. Um, and so, you know, what you're, what I'm trying to do anytime that I'm putting anything like that together, whether, whether it's my husband or my child or a client or an audience is basically say, <laughs> yeah, it's what are the, what are the pieces of that puzzle? You know, and, and for me, it, it, it turns out that reliably by thinking through those pieces as those pieces of the red thread, you know, what does somebody want? The goal, you know, what's that problem of perspective, the duck bunny, what's that moment of truth, you know, that gets in the way, you know, that, that, you know, that change. And then the actions just, I've just found that if I can, I can, if I can break any message or any idea into those pieces, you know, first it makes more sense to me. So I can have even greater ownership over it. And then it makes it so that it can make more sense to other people. And, um, but the key is really you have to start from why it would make sense to them. Like if you're trying to convince somebody else of your idea, that's when you have to do the hard work of, um, you know, essentially, you know, I think radical empathy is the term for it. You have to describe their perspective so well that you could argue for it. Like you have to argue, you have to be able to argue for their current perspective so well. That's the only time that you have enough information to actually help figure out how you could change the perspective is when you can completely understand and importantly respect the position that they're taking on it right now. So true. You know, I was I was thinking about on what you said about starting the week for the Weight Watchers or the time of day. And I think I'm the only psychotherapist on the planet that starts my sessions on the half hour. 
But I found that if I started at nine, uh, there's something that happens in the human psyche where it's okay to be a little late on the top of the hour. It's, it's this weird thing. And I, and I did this over the course of eight years in practice where I've tried different time slots and different things. And inevitably, if I started on the top of the hour, my clients were always five minutes late, always. And it, and it didn't make much of a difference except that then, you know, kind of like we talked about at the beginning, at the very end of the day, you know, I was so far behind. And if I started at 8.30 or at 9.30, people were early. <laughs> it's very odd. I don't know why. I love that. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, you know, it's the fluidity of time, right? And and the thing yeah. is that nobody, nobody, yeah, it, it always, oh gosh, that's juicy. I love that one. Yeah, it's very interesting. So even now I'll, I'll have clients that ask, well, can I come at noon? Nope. You got 11:30 or 12:30. Those are your choices. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and we and this was and this this very conversation was scheduled on a half hour. So I, yes, yep. I love knowing the the thinking behind it now. It's spectacular. <laughs> so I I would be remiss if I didn't ask why do people so people have these bright ideas all the time, but why do people give up on their big idea? Ah. Mm. <sighs> I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I like to quote, like to businesses, I do a lot of work with life science startups here in the Boston area, um, is that, you know, the number one, number one for startup failure is no market need. And I like to say to them, to me, that's actually no perceived market need. Uh, and I bring that back to people and their big ideas because it's very, it can be very easy, I think, sometimes to dismiss your idea because you haven't been able to communicate it. Um, and, you know, so there's really two, there's really two sides of this thing. So I, I quote often, um, Agatha Christie is probably one of my favorite quotes where she says that words are only the outer clothing of ideas, uh, which I adore. Um, and that means when people give up on their ideas, I think it's because there is a, something has broken on one side of that or the other. Um, but the good news is the words are always the cure. So here's what I mean. I mean, you, you actually can't articulate an idea if you don't know what it is. So this is, you know, back to what we we're talking about to analogies. Um, you know, sometimes we just have this, the sense of the idea, but like you don't actually know you have an idea until you can put words on it. You know, so words are these, you know, I, I think words are the currency of ideas. If you, if you can't put words on the idea, there's no way to get it out of you. So I think a lot of times people give up on their ideas because they haven't found the right words yet. Uh, and for all the reasons that we've talked about, um, that can be hard. We can forget that we have to actually go back and, you know, if our idea is an answer, we forget that we actually have to start back with somebody else's question and that we have to fill in those blanks to our idea so that they see why that idea not only gives them something that they want, but does it in a way that they haven't heard before. And that's a really critical combination when somebody hears an idea for the first time. And so I see a lot of people just in their articulation, they actually have an idea that's great, but they only give half an answer. They only say, well, here's what it is, or here's what it does, but they don't do it in a way that actually, you know, is, is both satisfies the question and creates, a, you know, an element of suspense of like, well, how do you do that? The other side, of course, is sometimes people just haven't thought enough about their ideas. Um, and like I said, I, what I right at the beginning, I think a lot of times people focus on kind of why their idea, why their idea is important, kind of like what makes it sexy, um, you know, rather than what makes it strong. 
And what makes it strong is that it's rooted in solving a problem, that it takes a perspective that somebody else hasn't had before, that it's aligned with a value that your prospective audience or you know person who you want to change shares right now. Um, and then it's a clearly articulated shift in thinking your behavior. Um, if, if it, if you don't have all those pieces of your idea, you don't actually have the whole idea. Um, because it, 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 somebody, everybody's brains are going to be asking for all those other, other elements. But I say that the solution is still the words because, you know, that's, that's where I, that's kind of one of the hidden benefits I found about this red thread piece is that it actually exposes where the weakness in an idea is. Um, you know, I had a client the other day and I'll, I'll, you know, due to confidentiality I have with all my clients, I'll protect all this stuff. But basically, this is a person who had a really good idea. He'd come up with a concept for an important thing and had come up with a great name for it. Um, and when I kept, you know, I kept pushing him on it because he wanted to turn it into a TEDx talk. Um, I said, but what question does it answer? And he didn't know. And so, and this is why he was struggling. He's like, I don't understand why people aren't like, you know, aren't, he had submitted this talk, you know, this idea for a couple of times. I'm like, because they don't, you don't have all the pieces yet. I mean, the good news was that there was a beautiful question that it, that it, that it did end up answering, but we had to go back and retrace the steps, right? right. Which is right. I call the red thread, the red thread is because that is in fact the process. So, well, when you um, were talking yeah. earlier, I was even thinking when you were, you were kind of going through the story piece and I was thinking, and there's the marketing pitch. That's what I was yeah. thinking in my mind exactly. was, Really, it, all that back work is not for naught because that is your marketing plan. <laughs> it 100% is. Yes, it's, it's it's like a free prize. Like not only right. do you actually come out understanding what your idea is, but you've actually come out with the case for it. Um, and uh, because that's it is the case. It's the case your own brain made, and it's because solved. of the right, exactly, it's solved it. And you know, as I explain when I when I talk about this kind of in the context of you know finding the story of an idea. Um, I say the good news is like in, in, you know, of course, in regular stories, there's happy endings and sad endings. Like, and that depends on whether or not, you know, someone you know, at the change I was talking about, whether or not someone gets the goal they were looking for at the beginning. That's how you decide really whether or not it's a happy ending or a sad ending. Um, and the good news in when you're talking about big ideas and in, in business messaging is that there are no sad endings. Like you are not creating a case where like, I know you have this question. Yeah, this answer doesn't work. I mean, so it's all happy endings. And so, um, that's all, you know, so it's, it's, it's great fun work for me because we're, it's, it always ends well, right? We're, we're always finding why this idea is important. We're always finding why it solves an important problem. We're always finding why it's different. Um, and we're always, we're always finding why it's, it's going, it's going to be irresistible, why it's going to be something people can't unhear because we've gone back and we've filled in the answers to the questions that the brain is going to ask anyway. Oh, I love that. I, I have a, a, a speech coming up on Valentine's Day and I was thinking of my own speech and I'm thinking, do I, am I answering the questions? Am I? <laughs> I was just thinking that myself. My husband, um, often says, and when you were talking about, you know, the presentation of a sexy idea that this happens a lot with and, uh, the restaurant analogy is always such a good one, but, um, with restaurants where, you know, people find a need for a, a you know, a missing type of food in, their town or whatever. And they think, Oh, I'm going to open a restaurant. And they focus so much on, you know, what does it look like when you walk in and the tables and the chairs and the signs and the building? Um, but they don't focus on the service and the food. 
And, you know, he says, nobody ever, nobody ever calls a friend and says, Hey, you know, that place down the street, they have really crappy service and their food is really bad, but man, the signs on the walls are just gorgeous. Let's go hang out. Let's go, let's go there. You know, it's, it's got to have that core component of the, of what people originally wanted, like what they wanted to, to solve there. Otherwise you're all about the fluff and you're not providing, you know, the, the piece that, that they wanted. And I, and I think that, I think that that's so important and and that's why a lot of ideas probably fail if we use the term fail, um, which I hate. That's one of those, um, labely type things I don't like, but it's probably because they didn't focus on what the problem they were solving was. Right. Or they did, but then they didn't actually figure out what, what was necessary in order to get there. Um, so I see this a, a lot, particularly with my kind of thought, what I would call thought leader clients, where um, they want like speakers and authors where they want. Um, and to some extent, you actually see this with businesses as well. Right. They're like, well, we have this awesome service or product like, you know, and they put everything on that. They put everything on like, well, I want to be a speaker and I have this great message. And I'm like, and how are people how are you actually going to who's buying it? Like, why would they right. buy that? Like, right. What, you know, and I, as I said to someone the other day, I'm like, what is a problem that they're solving, solving right? Like that they're looking to solve right now that they have a line item in their budget assigned to. Because if if your idea doesn't pass that test out of the gate, it's not going to it's not going to survive, not because it wasn't a good idea, but because you didn't connect it to to the to the what, what actually right. is make it survive, you know, and so. Um, even though I spent 20 years in branding, I take a really backwards approach to it. I really start from, I really start from that. I'm like, who's going to, what, what do, what do they, I know what you're trying to do. I know what your idea is, but before we come up with, you know, all the grand messaging around it and try to figure out how to convince them that your messaging is right, that your language is right. Let's start with what they're actually going to buy right now. Like, you know, if I'm talking with an author or a speaker, I'm like, where's your, where's your, what are you going to sell on the back end of this talk? Like, because the, that's, the talk isn't it. You, you have to have more like to right. sell. Um, right. it has to get you another talk. And by the way, that's really hard. Um, because if you're giving it to one audience, it's unlikely that a whole bunch of people in that audience are going to be in a position to hire you again. Right. So right. how's that going to work? Right. So I start from there. Um, you know, with once I have a general idea of what somebody's idea is, you know, before we come up with like the big message for it, it starts back with what are the outcomes, what needs to happen, and from whom, who's the audience. Um, it's only then that you can uh, you can start to find the shape of the idea because you know, back to you know Christie's great words. To me, a message uh, happens at the intersection of an idea, the outcome, and the audience. And sometimes people are like, well, that's not true. The, you know, that's like, well, I can have just one message. I'm like, no, you can't. I mean, think <laughs> about, think about your idea, right? Like think about your idea in the terms of, let's say what you do, right? So, um, you know, you're a psychotherapist. You're going to talk about what you do and how you do it to another psychotherapist very, very differently than you would describe what you do and how you do it to, let's say, a six-year-old child, yeah, right? Definitely. <laughs> but what you do doesn't change. And so this is what I'm trying to say to people. It's like your, your idea is your idea, but the only person the idea, the idea in its shapeless form needs to make sense to is you. 
And from then, every other time it comes out of your mouth, it has to make sense to the person that you're talking to, which right. means you actually have to understand your idea well enough to be able to redress it, you know, for the six-year-old or for the expert or whatever. Yeah, that's, I mean, and that, again, so true of life in general, um, to, to accomplish, you know, to get our needs met, to, to have our wants and our asks met. That's, that's exactly right. We have to understand what we want well enough that we can communicate it to other people. So true. So people often stay the course, whether they like it or not, because of fear. And I'm sure you see this a lot with businesses. You know, a lot of great ideas get squashed because they're maybe too risky or they're uncomfortable. How, what, how do you push through that? What do you encourage people in those situations? And, and probably you saw this probably a lot in your Weight Watchers days, too. They're afraid. They're afraid of change. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And, and um, yes. So I um, actually a phrase that I that I came up with for a client to help her explain what she does uh, is a great way to put it. So she, this is, actually, I think I referenced her earlier, Tracy Tim. Um, we came up with this great phrase to help explain what she does, that, that you need to find what you value more than fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I gave a, I gave a TEDx talk, which talked about this a little bit, um, mostly because I wanted to put myself through what I was putting other people through. And it was through. fabulous, <laughs> by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, and what I, you know, one of the things that I say in that is that it's not that you don't love your goals enough. It's that you don't hate your problems more. And, um, I think what we have to do to help people overcome fear, it comes back to something that you and I have been talking about a lot, Michaela, which is how do we anchor it, anchor whatever somebody's about to do in a belief that's stronger for them than the one they're holding, that they're attaching to it now. Um, and a fear isn't a belief, right? You know, the, the fear is, fear is a result of something else. And you know this as a psychotherapist that, you know, fear is a feeling, like it's a result of something. Um, and it can, and it can be a cause of something, but you can't, just tell someone, don't be afraid. Just like you can't tell someone, don't panic. You have to create the conditions where the fear becomes like, doesn't matter anymore. Um, and so I, you know, for me, that happens if we're talking about the, the red thread, that's where that moment of truth piece comes in. Because when I'm working with someone on, you know, finding a message, whether that's a message to help themselves change or to help somebody else, um, what we're trying to find with that truth statement is something that they believe strongly. Um, but that if they were to maintain their previous perspective, kind of in our duck bunny thing, it puts their goal in jeopardy. And so, um, I think the quickest way I can explain this is with a, with an, with a, an example that most people are familiar with, because I think the best truth statement, um, is the tagline from De Beers that a diamond is forever. Um, and if we go back and kind of think about these pieces, like the goal of someone who wants to get married is, uh, what's the best symbol of our commitment, right? That's something that they really want. Uh, what De Beers discovered in the 1930s and such, because that was actually back then, 1947 is when that tagline came out. People did not regularly buy engagement rings and they did not buy, regularly buy diamond engagement rings. So, wow. uh, (laughs) I know. Thanks to Beers. Exactly. Because what they focused on the duck here was that the, that the current focus was on the ring as the symbol. You know, we've probably heard people say it like a circle with no beginning and no end. That was the forever, right? Was the circle was a forever. Um, and so the bunny there was like, but there's kinds of rings, (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, you, you know, we're focused on the ring, but you can focus on a kind of ring. And then by adding this truth statement, 
which it because the reason why I say it's one of the best true statements out there is because it is it is a statement that is literally true that most people engineers aside um, will agree that a diamond is very difficult to destroy. It's one of the hardest substances on the planet. And so it was a literal true statement that people that was consistent with people how how people already saw the world. Mm-hmm. And what De Beers did by putting it in that story of the idea, how what's the best symbol of our commitment? You're focused on the ring. And again, they don't even have to say the kind of, you know, you're not focused on the mm-hmm. kind of ring. All they do is they put in a diamond is forever. And all yeah. of a sudden, if they hold their previous perspective of just the ring, it puts their goal in jeopardy. But it won't be like the best, best symbol because now I can like add a metaphorical definition of diamonds to it, right? And right. so what was the change? Now people see the stone as the symbol and not wow. the ring. Wow. Or in addition to the ring, right? So that's that's the change. And so I use that as an example because in any, you know, like, or let's go back to my anxiety example. Like the moment that I could say to myself, I thought myself into it so I can think myself out, um, that was a stronger truth than I am destined to be abnormal. Right, right. Um that just because of how I was wired. That's why I say I don't think it's a magical cure for everybody. Like, here's your script for coming over. Because that, that that's actually what happened to for me because that was a stronger belief for me, which right. meant that the kind of fear that was going to come from like, I don't know how to cope with some of these situations without, you know, that dropped away, you know, because it was, you know, it removed the fear of the panic because a, it became, I could see my panic as a normal reaction and B I anchored then that normal reaction and consistent with something that was, it was powerful for me. It was forward looking for me because like I said, that to me was true. Like I knew I, you know, I spent 17 years with panic at that point. I knew that it was a process of my thinking behaviors, which meant, which, Again, for me, it was a truth consistent with how I see the world. If I thought myself into it, I can think my way out. And so that just set me on a pattern of like, I am now going to figure out how to think about this differently so that I don't have this reaction. Um, because I don't, while this is normal for me now, I don't want it to be normal for me for the rest of my life. Wow. Super powerful. Just even in talking with you, Tamsin, your your insight and the way that you look at the world is truly remarkable. I mean, truly I, I'm so thankful to have had you on the podcast to share these concepts and ideas that so many people can relate to, um, just even in their everyday life. I, I think this is a super um, interesting perspective on tackling problems. And, you know, we've been talking at it from a perspective of ideas, but it's really coming at problem solving is, is what it's yep. really about and um, how powerful in the way that you reframe it. And I think, I think the world needs to hear more of you. So I'm definitely going to link your TED Talk and um, your website, but how can people get in touch with you? Uh, that's the best way. The website is definitely the best way. Um, and uh, just I, I love for people to be on my newsletter list because it's where I explore new ideas. And um, and also, by the way, also share weekly all the various, you know, fun sources of potential analogies that I find. So love it. Um, love yeah, it. I turn I turn once I, I think I mentioned I. I decided I just didn't cast enough a wide enough net. So about, you know, probably oh, seven years ago now, I started five to seven years ago, I started started just regularly doing scan reading all over. And then I decided just I just share that with everybody else because I can't possibly use all the stuff that I find. <laughs> oh, I love that. I, I definitely need the analogies. I'm going to have to sign up for the newsletter today. <laughs> awesome. That's great. Yay. 
Well, thanks so much for coming on. And I really appreciate just hearing you talk today. It's been such an honor. Uh, my pleasure, Michaela. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been a BU Find Happy podcast. For more inspiration, check out the links.